Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www3 And a very warm welcome back to Solidarity Breakfast. A left response to the major developments in capitalism. What they trade in is not wheat. They trade in famine. A little dose of revolutionary optimism. I think it's really important to sort of express solidarity globally. It really is a deal by corporations for corporations. The union forever defending our rights down with the black leg. If you think the ABC's left wing, don't listen to this program. Solidarity Breakfast, 7.30 to 9am Saturdays, 3CR, 8.55am. Streaming and 3CR Digital, podcast or audio on demand. And of course, the website, solidaritybreakfast.org.au. Solidarity forever! Good morning, Rebecca. Hello, Rebecca. It's Radio. Yes, good morning. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, now we've got a great Solidarity Breakfast team and uh, today we've got lots of things to bring to you. Uh, um, Today we're going to start off with uh, the memorial that was, public memorial that was uh, held on the Parliament steps Wednesday the 26th of September for uh, Leap Goni, who was a... South Sudanese boy who had come to live in Australia uh, uh, and he was beaten to death by two white supremacists 11 years ago in Noble Park. Did you know about that, Fiona? Yeah, I um, I, I heard, I read about it in and in the newspaper and the, on the radio and followed it pretty closely and it was, it was heart-wrenching completely and it was an act of um, racism and y- y- something that you would think is unheard of yeah. that would happen, you know. I mean, it seems it's, it's the kind of event that belongs to South Africa apartheid. It d- didn't seem right in um, modern Australian multiculturalism society so it was really um, disturbing, yeah. Uh, the public memorial was put together by uh, Leap's uh, cousins it was uh, a family event. They organised it and they put out a public uh, call to uh, people to come and join them. Uh, and people did. Uh, there was uh, over 200 people there in the gardens beside pa- Parliament House. And then they moved to the uh, front of uh, Parliament on the steps. And the reason for that is actually given quite clearly by our first excerpt, which is uh, from one of Leap's cousins. So let's hear. She, she explains why they all do it, did a public memorial 11 years later. Hello everyone, today is a difficult day for our family and the community, but we all here, we all came today to celebrate the life of Leo. Although it's going to be difficult to stand in front of you guys and tell you guys how much of a, a loving person our cousin was, it was possible. I want to introduce myself. My name is Nyamal Mon and I'm Leib's cousin. 
Today is the day we've silently been waiting for as a family since the cold Thursday night of knowing that our brother and cousin Liep was racially attacked to death. Not because he did anything wrong to anybody, because that's not him, but because of his skin color. Today we celebrate the 19 years we were blessed with to have Liep and to know him. Although his life was taken away so soon, he made such a great impact to everyone that met him. And for that reason, his character will never die. Today is so peaceful because we came together to stand and fight against the racial cause of our cousin's death, regardless of our differences. There's no perfect word that I can think of to describe how humble, caring, loving, and a fun person Leop was. I can go on and on, but it's never enough because we lost a part of us, a hero, and that will always, someone that always placed others first. Thank you, Master Liep, for showing us how to love one another and how to treat everybody equally. The first message of hope is dedicated to our South Sudanese mothers. I would firstly like to thank you all individually for your immense love in bringing us here to this land of opportunities, regardless of the hardship that you have faced, and for always standing strong and wanting the best of us. Let's connect to a deeper level and create a better tomorrow, using our journeys as a story to uplift and shape us. The second message of hope is dedicated to our South Sudanese youth. I know that living in two different worlds of being a South Sudanese and Australian man or woman is difficult, especially when you are feel too trapped, not understood and alone, when you are continuously being conditioned into thinking that you are a thug or no greater than you really are. It's unfair. It's never too late to break that cycle, though. Love yourself so deep that no one else's point of view will break you. The last message of hope is dedicated to our South Sudanese community. Let's turn a blind eye to the negative news and articles that are made to stereotype and discriminate us. Let's understand that together we have a voice and the right to make a change. Let's keep in mind that when one fall, we all fall. And when one wins, we all win. Therefore, we need to unite all together and teach our future generations how to be strong, bold, peaceful and unbreakable especially in this land opportunities that will have some people break and knock you down due to your physical, beautiful appearance and, the, and your capabilities. Thank you all so much for coming to stand with us today as a family and as a community. Before I close my speech, I would like us to take one minute to, to, to dedicate this time and to show respect and honour to Liep and the loving souls that we lost without a reason or an explanation so that they can finally rest in peace. So we'll just take a minute before the next speech comes up. This is Iri Lecker. You're here on 3CR 855 AM Community Radio. Also streaming on 3cr.org.au. Free West Papua, Papua Merdeka gets up one talks. Yes, you're on Solidarity Breakfast. And that was the uh, one of the cousins that had called for the public memorial for Leap. Uh, uh, and uh, we're going to go on to a, uh, a speech 
to finish off that, that was given by Leap's mother. It's it's quite an extraordinary speech, and that's why it's a bit longer. Uh, it's in a very important event uh, to it, one that the South Sudanese, as a community, have stood up and said, "This is who we are. Stop defining us." in a way that fits your politic of racism. And the fact that a person uh, so young uh, was victimised, and you you think about the uh, level of violence and dedication it takes to actually beat someone to death with your bare hands. I mean, Mm. that is a grim and gruesome thing. But the thing about it is that uh, the speech that his mother gives, uh, she was... uh, she wanted people not only to uh, uh, recognise what had happened in a public mourning way, but uh, also uh, it was a release of grief for her. She needed the community to actually uh, own up, fess up, be part of uh, the mourning. And uh, so as the, as her uh, compatriot uh, says, uh, she... Um, uh, Leap's mother speaks in language and is then translated. So let's hear what she has to say. We're just waiting for uh, Leap's mum. She's coming up the stairs. Um, she will speak and I will uh, translate for her. I'm very happy to see all of you here today. I feel as if you've all left your jobs and your homes to come and stand with me today. Thank you. Thank you, because by coming here, I feel like you've recognized my pain. I'm here because of my son, Liep. When Liep died, I didn't say much because I felt as if my whole life was destroyed and I was just lying down on the ground. I would have liked then to have told you who the real Liep was. I gave birth to Liep at a place where there was a lot of trouble. I also went. Um, I went, also went through a difficult pregnancy. One of my aunties there was the midwife who helped me give birth to Liep. At that time, she would encourage me as I went through a difficult pregnancy. Even through my difficult pregnancy, I still gave birth to Liep. And I left my country because I, we were having a lot of trouble at the time. My husband was arrested and we were being harassed. I then left my country for a refugee camp. But when I arrived at that refugee camp, 
another trouble befell me because two of my children um, were in a house when it caught fire. She got girl, she won't feel girl. She got girl, she lose girl. One of my kids was burned seriously on one side, and the other kid was killed in the fire. And we have been to Australia. When I came to Australia, I thought I'd run away from all the trouble and hunger. I was very happy here. My family first settled in Tasmania. And Tommy, when I found Lip here, who had arrived with my mom earlier, I found him he was a strong kid. Lip was the one who taught me everything when I came here. He taught me which beans I was supposed to put the recycling in and which ones I was supposed to put the green grass in. Lip Australia. He never had any debts. Lib used to even help me take his little sister to the childcare because he was the one translating for me. As you can see, I'm still struggling with the, with the language. This is why I, the, my own speech is being translated for me. On the night that he was killed, he had, he had called me. Around 8 to 9 o'clock. At that time, when he called me, I was, I was at a meeting preparing for one of Lieb's sister's wedding. And when I was at that meeting, um, Lieb was had gone out to go and buy paint to come and paint the house in preparation for the weddings and the guests to arrive. He wanted to do everything in a hurry because at that time he had also got a job um, to go and start working full time in Colac. Lieb wanted to work because he said he wanted to buy me a home. Lieb had always seen me suffer and so to make me happy was one of the things he wanted to do. When I got to the train station to pick him up, he wasn't there. Also, sadly, one of his, he had called one of his cousins, but when one of his cousins has arrived there, he didn't find Liep, but only found his brother and took his brother away. It's disturbing to me to think that maybe at the time when I went to the train station and I was looking around for Lip, that it was the time that he was at the same time being beaten and being attacked. When I got home, 
um, since I didn't find Leap, I drove back home. When I got home, I found his little brother was cooking and he offered me food. And I asked him, where is Leap? He said, I think he might have gone to one of our auntie's places. Even be, as we were talking, I got a phone call. Leap, the pink carnival park station. Can't point there. Take a room. Can't hear anything. I was told on the phone that Leap has been found at Noble Park. He was covered in blood, and the ambulance had been called. Again, poor and poor, Nero. Bagarin to Bob. We we both ran to the um, to the door, my son and I. Ah, Chaka, I get to the station. Chaka, Leap, Jack. When I got there, I found that Liep was being um, put into the ambulance, but his whole body had not uh, gone through, so his legs were still hanging out. So both my son and I ran and tried and grab him by the legs. All I can remember is being pushed back and having um, a jacket uh, dripping with blood thrown at us and seeing the doors of the ambulance shut. I was then told to go to Alfred Hospital. That's where I was going to find my son. When I arrived there, I was with my little daughter, and as she saw Liep and saw all the blood, she started vomiting and vomiting, and so was her cousin. You might ask, why am I coming today after 11 years? It has been a very, very, very tough 11 years. Because of Liep killing, my life was destroyed. I felt like I was spending all my time um, either with the police or with the emergency because um, Liep's brother was so traumatized by the killing that he began himself to get in trouble. It felt as if I had just become known to all the police, all the doctors, all the emergency people, because I was constantly running between all these groups. Uh, I would like a death like this to never happen again. The death of a child, the death of a young man is very painful. In my culture, particularly a young man who, who has no children of his own, is a very painful death and a very painful loss. In, in my culture, young men are seen as the power of the community. And even when there are difficulties, they are prioritized. But my heart continues to break because sometimes I see the story of my son used in contexts that are not appropriate. 
I was shocked because I expected an opposite reaction. My son was not killed because he fought someone. My son was not killed because he did something wrong. My son was killed because of the color of his skin. So I expected a different reaction to, some, to how Leop was treated. I thought that the government and people would stand with me because of the manner in which my son was killed. I hope that what happened to Liep never happened to another young man again. But I feel that for that to happen, for that change to happen, it will require even members of parliament to change the way they talk. I am not saying that I don't know that some of the things that have been done by some kids are horrible. I know they've broken into homes. I know that they've hurt people. Um, but I also know that this is much more complicated than what we've seen um, in the media. This, some, of the, some of the solutions that should be suggested are not the kind of rhetoric we have. I would like to ask for patience, particularly from the rest of the community who feels that maybe we were brought here and some of us haven't done the right thing, that it's going to be a matter of time before some of us uh, catch up. I also like to send a message to the teachers and say, you know, allow our kids to go to school, allow them to do, you know, the subjects that they want to do instead of um, t telling them to go to TAFE and doing all the manual, uh, the manual stuff. For community, and support, um, support our community to provide more education facilities for our young people. For all this, even though my heart breaks, I am still very grateful to live in this beautiful country, to live in a house that has electricity, to live in a space that is safe. Uh, um, I'd like to say that thank you all for coming and that um, I hope that the stuff that have happened doesn't mean that people like me are not allowed to come to this country again because majority of us are good people. Thank you very much all for coming and standing with me.
Ngorama ngobe barias roi nabor ne barias insa kawasa berodunya sifawina morning star by come by come kurari film up art film up man film up Just heard a song called Morning Star Baikam. 
by Tio and Mama Tineke. Uh, it's on a CD that's called Songs of Memory and Hope, which is being uh, yeah sold um, out of the uh, women's office, the West Papua Women's Office down in Docklands, um, and it was put together as a memorial uh, of the twenty uh, yeah twentieth anniversary of the Biak massacre, which happened this year. Um, the anniversary twenty twenty year anniversary was this year. Yeah. So uh, now I'm going to hand... Remembering yes. you're on Solidarity oh. Breakfast. Remembering so, you're on yes. Solidarity Breakfast. Yes, you are. On 3CR. <laughs> and moving right along. <laughs> yes. Okay. Thanks. That was a beautiful piece of music. It was. It kind of... Um, it was just right, I felt, tonally after that really moving speech that we heard. Um, so I, I had a chat with Anne-Marie... Jacker, I think that's how you pronounce it. She's a Palestinian um, filmmaker and um, her film is featuring in the Palestinian Film Festival, which is touring around Australia, and it runs in Melbourne from the 4th to the 7th of October. Um, but her, So her film is called Wahib. I'm pretty sure that's how you pronounce it, The Wedding Invitation. Uh, Wahib stands for duty, that sense of um, <clears throat> duty to your community, your family, upholding customs and traditions. And so the film is about um, a father who, um, with his son, uh, hand-delivers many invitations to his daughter's wedding. And the daughter doesn't participate in this custom um, because her, that's, not, that's, not her, that's not her role. So the film basically follows the father and the son as they visit many different houses and hand-deliver these invitations. And um, it's set in Nazareth. And it's, of course, that's really, that's really important because Nazareth um, has the highest... Um, well, it's predominantly an Arab community, so it's it's in Israel. However, it's main, mostly populated by Palestinians, and so this the duty of um, and these customs are really important because they preserve the identity of Palestinians. This is something that Palestinians do, so they hold on to that duty of um, of, of hand delivering wedding invitations, and, and that's just a metaphor for all the other things they hold on to, which preserves their identity as they live in you know within within the Israeli state. Um, but pol- so the politics is there; it's subtle, but it's there, and um, it's most obvious in the tension between the father and the son. They have two different approaches to living in Israel. The father and the lies, the little lies, all the white lies. Yeah. <laughs> so the father kind of tries to keep the peace and just wants to do stuff for the family, and will will uh, work with kind of um, the Israeli state, um, and uh, uh, um. Yeah, whereas the, the son is um, abhorred. He yeah, and he sees it as degrading. He, exactly. So yeah. the son kind of wants, wants to stand up to that oppression um, and then there's a bit of a, a quite a bit of conflict in the film between the father and the son. So it's a wonderful kind of interesting film. It's, it's light but it's, um, at the same time it's, it's provocative and it's um, stirring. So this is my chat with Anne-Marie. Really um, beautiful dra- comedy drama um, that gave the audience kind of an insight into a community that we don't, I mean, Australian audiences don't really know very much about. Um, I guess in Australian media, we, we hear a lot about the Palestinian-Israel conflict and it's normally, you know, very uh, graphic and bloody and it's it's heart-wrenching. Um, it's normally about the conflict on the Gaza. So the, your film um, allowed us to, to gave us insight into Arab communities living in Israel where the politics is there, but it, the tension is there, but it's very subtle. Um, mm. and it's woven into the fabric 
of the lives of the characters. And I, I just wanted to ask whether that was intentional on, on your behalf to show the conflict in that way. Well, I think, um, yeah, I mean, you're right. It, it's, it all depends where you are. Like, you know, you said Gaza. I mean, the situation in Gaza is very different than the situation in, in Ramallah or Bethlehem, um, where I'm from, um, than it is in Nazareth, where the film takes place. Um, and so everyone's, you know, everyone is dealing with 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 the conflict and the occupation, um, but in different ways. And in I, and I, you know, what the, the interesting thing about a place like Nazareth um, for the film is that um, it's much more, it's it's much less in your face. You know, I mean, in Gaza, it's very clear what's happening. I mean, in Bethlehem, where I'm from, there's like, you know, the army is right in front of our house. There are clashes in front of the house. And there is also day-to-day -day life, too. I mean, even in those places, there's just everyday life when there's not the stuff that you know, we see on the news. There's just the way people are living, and there's, you know, uh, weddings and, you know, uh, you know this and that, and all, all of that very mundane, normal life that, of course, you know, has, has another element to it. Um, mm. So I think all my films deal with that normalcy, um, in a way, wherever they're set. But, but Wajib in particular, um, I was really interested in this community um, that is, you know, in Nazareth, which is, you know, this Palestinian community that is, is you know, now living, um, you, know, in the, you know, in the Israeli state, what has become Israel. And, and it's the biggest Palestinian city inside Israel. Right. And, it's, and, it's, and it's completely Palestinian, like some of the other cities are mixed, but Nazareth, mm -hmm. you know, doesn't, is not a mixed city. Um, and I was interested in that. It's, it's mm -hmm. a very tense place. Um, and yet there's this great sense of humor um, that, you know, is, is, I wanted to have in the film. And I think it's, you know, it is there. Yeah, definitely. Are the Palestinians who live there mostly Christian? Uh, Nazareth is a mixed city. Um, Nazareth is, is uh, about 60%, 40% Muslim Christian. Um, so that's why at the beginning of like at the beginning of the film, you have the radio, you know, the announcements of the, the death, um, which is like a real program like you hear all over. And, and so you hear like Muslims and Christians. And, and I, I wanted to capture that, um, I, that, you know, that the fact that Nazareth is a Christian and a Muslim city. Um, but, you know, Abu Shadi and Shadi are secular people. But we, you know, we know we understand like that. They, you know, they have some family members who are not and who are very, very Christian and very enthusiastic about Christmas. <laughs> and, and you're right, it is, there's, there is comedy and there is lightness um, in the film, but it, it does, at the end, it, 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 is quite, it gets uh, quite serious and heated between the father and, um, and the son. Um, and the, the conflict seems to represent two different generations and as well as two different approaches to living um, in Israel and under the occupation. Um, so that was... That was really interesting. I really enjoyed that part of it, of the film. Thank you. I'm good. And I'm I, glad it, 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 it translates, too, um, because it's so specific, too. I mean, it's a very specific um, situation. Um, and mm. I, 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 I'm glad that uh, I, I found, you know, traveling with the film internationally, um, it's not hard to, I mean, it's the, the emotions are there. The emotions of the, the two, you know, men are there, and it's, something that, that I think people can relate to, even if they don't know the details of the situation here. Definitely. And, and I think also the importance of family tradition and that whole um, importance of saving, saving face and um, not offending 
you know, your relatives and your community. I think I think that is something that translates to lots of um, people of different of different cultures. So um, I, I'm sure lots yeah. of audiences can 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 relate to that. Um, uh, but uh, uh, I was just going to say the the whole. I mean, I really I really sympathise with the father who um, seemed to be um, who loved his family dearly, but um, was often uh, uh, just isolated. Really. Um, Especially his wife left, and his son had also left. So it, it quite, he was like the centre of, well, the emotional centre of the film. I, I felt, um, and he was a remarkable actor as well. Mm. Have you worked with um, him and his son before? So yeah, it's um, yeah. I agree with you. He's he's the he's the emotional core of the film, and he's he's um, you know I might disagree with him politically. Um, but I found, you know, uh, you know, I, he's really like he's the man who gave up everything for his family, um, and he doesn't have family in the end. You know, he's he's compromised mm. everything. All those little white lies that he told, you know, he tells, and all that is about sort of trying to, you know, sort of create. I mean, he, you know, this 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 uh, person, this this life that he knows he doesn't have, and his, you know, not just that Shadi, his you know son leaves abroad, his wife left him. But now his daughter's getting married, and so he's going to mm. really be alone. Um, and he's the one person who did, you know, worked everything he did was so he wouldn't be alone. Mm. Um, and Mohammed um, Bakri, who plays the father, is a is a is a fantastic actor. He's a very well known actor. And Shadi, uh, the Saleh, who plays his son, they are father and son in real life. Yeah. Um, and they're both um, actors in their own right. The son I have worked with. Um, he's a real collaborator of mine, and I've worked with him on on all of my feature films. Mm-hmm. Um, and when I, you know, I always knew that he was going to play the role of of Shadi. When I wrote the script, I had him in mind. Um, but Muhammad, I didn't, um, I wasn't sure about. I cast him, you know, much later later in the process. Um, and he's a he's an amazing actor, but he's so different than than Abu Shadi. Actually, um, he's very far away from that character. Um, and I, I wanted also to be sure that they were really going to be able to, to do the role together because I, yeah. I know that even though they're professionals, it is a personal story and it is, you know, it's, it's difficult for, it would be difficult for them as actors, um, you know, to really, mm-hmm. I wanted them to, like that last scene, you know, yeah. I, I, wanted to pu- I wanted them to push each other and push each other's buttons and, and we did a lot of improv also in that scene during rehearsals because I wanted it to be really raw and really real. And they had to be willing to to do that. And sometimes people aren't. You know, it's easier to 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 act with a with a a stranger than somebody that's in your own family because you, you do have sort of you know maybe you don't want to have all your dirty laundry out or you have mm. you know triggers that you want to protect, um, or it's too difficult or it's too painful to to do it with a real family member. Um, so we talked a lot about that. And and when we, you know when I cast Muhammad, we had very open conversations about that and. And he said, you know, this will be the challenge of my lifetime, actually, mm-hmm. to work with my son in, in, in such a role. Um, and it'll also be, you know, one of the most, you know, personal projects that I can do. So it was great. It was great. And they gave so much mm-hmm. to it, even, you know, more than, than I, you know, you know, there are things that they just, you know, he, especially Muhammad, really, I think he gave his heart and soul into into his uh, performance. Yeah. Their, their political positions in the film, do they at all correspond with their political positions in their personal life or is it separate? Well, Saleh is a bit more radical than his father. Um, 
uh, and they do like they do have a funny running argument between them that you know Muhammad is very much like you know like we are actors and we shouldn't be involved in politics and Saleh is like no the world is political we should be very involved in politics and at the same time Muhammad I mean Muhammad has many faces Muhammad is you know he made a, a documentary a few years ago um, and he's been like, you know, it was banned in Israel and he's been taken to court and he's had, you know, the, the, the state, the Israeli state is really giving him a hard time in his life. Um, and so at what one moment he said to me after actually we, we wrapped shooting, he said, you know, actually, I think it was in an interview. Someone asked him, are you very, are you guys very similar to Shadi and Abu Shadi in real life? And Muhammad said, actually, he said, I feel like I am Shadi and my, my father mm. was Abu Shadi. Right. And he said, that's why that scene, you know, the, one of the last scenes is so painful for him. He said, I felt like I, some of the things yeah. that Shadi says is things that I said to my father and I, and I feel awful about. Mm. Oh, that's quite moving. Yeah. 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 Um, the, the, the nuclear family in the film is a little bit, um, if you feel like it's bursting at the seams and, um, you know, the mother's left and, the, the, and so the family's all kind of separated and split up. Um, do you have, do you believe, do you have negative views about the nuclear family in general or um, uh, is, it just, is it just something that you explored in this film? <laughs> it's just something I explored in this film, but right. I, I do, um, you know, I, <laughs> I mean, I think... You know, one of the tensions between the two men is that, you know, Shadi has his own idea of, you know, of what family is. And, it, you know, he doesn't need to be living um, in, you know, his hometown and he has a girlfriend and he lives abroad. And, you know, he's sort of formulated, a, you know, and he will have a modern family and he doesn't think he needs to get married. And, you know, that's kind of the tension between them. Um, and at the mm -hmm. same time, you know, I just love Abu Shadi that he's, you know, he's... Uh, He's just, he's traditional, but what I love, for example, about the daughter who, you know, you know, his daughter who's getting married, she's the younger sister, and she's kind of, you know, I didn't want to make her, she's more conservative, let's say, than Shadi, she's, you know, she's doing the marriage thing, she's doing, you know, everything, but she's not a weak personality at all. She's just decided that that's the lifestyle that she wants, and also that it's not about her, like there's a sort of selflessness in it when he, you know, it's, it's like... She knows that what this wedding is going to mean for her father, this man who's been humiliated in front of his yep. community and he doesn't have much. And so she's giving him something, too. Um, it's not mm -hmm. just what you take. It's mm -hmm. what you give. And the little, the little sister gets that. And Shadi, I think that's one of his journeys in the film. I think it's one of the things yep. that he you know, learns really? to, to understand. Mm -hmm. In terms of the, the genesis of the film, was, was it difficult to get funding and to get the project off the ground? Or was that fairly straightforward? You know, it's always difficult for us because we don't really have um, funding. We don't have financial institutions that really support. Um, and it's always difficult with Palestinian cinema. Um, most of our films um, get made because of co-productions with other countries. Right. Um, and in, yeah, and in this case, we had a lot of co-producers. We had, you know, Norway, Germany. We had um, France. Um, yeah, we had uh, Colombia. This is the first Colombian-Palestinian co-production. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because the, the producer said, you know, the Colombian Film Commission is looking to do, you know, projects with other countries. Right. Why don't we apply with Wajib? And I said, but we, you know, we have nothing to do with the film. Has nothing to do with Colombia. Has nothing to do. With, there's no Spanish. There's no. I mean, there's nothing in the film. 
Um, and he said, well, let's just see, let's just do it. And, uh, and then, um, you know, I kind of thought I was making fun of him. I said, like, this is really like desperate, you know? And, and then I'm the one, you know, eating my words because <laughs> they, they went for it and they, they, you know, and it was, you know, it, they had very simple requirements. We had to have mm-hmm. some crew and some mm-hmm. cast, um, and, uh, it was a beautiful collaboration. So mm. yes, <laughs> that's wonderful. <laughs> yeah. Um, do you, do you have another project? In development, I I am yes I'm uh, I'm writing I'm writing a new project um, and I'm uh, you know it's a, it's a historical one and one that requires a lot of research so I'm mm-hmm. uh, I'm taking my time with it I don't oh. I don't like to rush things. Um, when you say historical, yeah, but, uh, uh, his, his, the history of your region or yes, it takes place um, in the forties. Okay. Yep. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> Sounds very It'll interesting. Really fun. But, that, but that's also, that makes, means it's, it's really going to be more, much more expensive than my other films. Mm-hmm. Um, and so also, you know, fun financing for that is going to, I hope, not take that long. I always have about five, six years between my films, five years, um, because, of, because of financing. So I, I hope, uh, you know, you know, you kind of want to work as a director. You really want to work and you want to, you know, work on, you know, improve your craft and, and keep, you know, keep moving and keep working. But sure. it's... Uh, that the situation of independent cinema doesn't always allow for that to happen as as fast as one might like. Are there opportunities in in television? Yeah, you know, I'm, I have not done TV before, um, but I'm you know there are opportunities. There are not a lot here, but it's starting to it's starting to happen in our region. Um, and uh, and you know, television interests me mainly because. Um, you know, it, you know, you you do things because of you know you want to reach your audience. You want to talk to an audience. You want to have a dialogue with yep. people. And uh, the fact of is that people are watching a lot of TV these days, and that's that's where the audience is. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm not like I'm not a purist like cinema only. No, I mean I, I think cinema has its place, and cinema is at the top for me. But I I do think it's interesting to explore other other things. Before we wrap up, I I just want to ask you if you um, have any views on um, the the Trump administration's recent decision to end funding for um, Palestinian refugees and the services that will support them. Yeah, I mean, it's uh, the Trump administration in general, in terms of, of I mean, in terms of everything. But let's just talk about Palestine. is is such an, a nightmare. I mean, and 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 ending, you know, this this thing is is really it's 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 a killer for people. Right. Um, it's not the way to go about doing something, and and just this whole general thing with him saying that he's you know he's committed to finding peace in the region. I mean, what, mm-hmm. you know, the Americans have contributed more than anybody else to ensuring that we don't have peace in the region. Um, I mean, really, the, like the Americans. I mean, I don't I don't know why that they think it's their job to be involved. Like we would be much better off, Palestinians and Israelis, if the Americans just left us alone. Yeah, and number one, left us alone to solve this by ourselves because we can and we will. And number two, I mean, how can you say you're trying to support peace and then they're putting billions and billions of dollars into military aid to Israel, which is crushing us. I mean, and then they, they say they're the ones trying to be a broker. I mean, it's just a joke. It's just ridiculous. I hope that I just they just leave us alone and we'll, yeah. we'll figure it out. That, that is the best favor, the biggest favor they can do for us. For sure. You're listening to 3CR, 855 AM, the voice of the community. Okay, so that was me chatting with Anne-Marie Jacker from Palestine. Yeah, it was a great interview. 
She was a delight to speak to. Please go along and um, check out the Palestinian Film Festival, which runs 4th to the 7th of October. Her film, Wajib, The Wedding Invitation, is getting a national release October the 10th. Please support uh, Palestinian cinema so we can see more of it. Thank you. I feel like this is really loud. Boppy, Rebecca. Very nice, nice and soothing. And you're on uh, 3CR on Solidarity Breakfast. We've got a whole team here today, which is great. And uh, we've even got Kevin. Kevin's live. G'day, Kevin. It's the grand final weekend. It's... Hang on, I've just got my finger on my pulse. Yes, I am alive. It's okay. Go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> okay, we should let you go then. Go ahead. Exactly. A weak Solidarity Brecky team listener when the excitement reaches its climax when what we couldn't wait for but had no choice but to wait for finally arrives, the one day of the year. Well, along with Train Killer Day, Invasion Day, Her Most Gracious Majesty's Birthday Day, Cup Day, Grand Prix Day, Fashion Week Day, every day. Yes, finally, this one's here, and once again, we're privileged to have our regular broadcaster, Kevin, to bring us the big game, and even more privileged, once again, to have our special comments expert, Michelle. So the time has finally come. Let's cross to the ground. Kevin, paint the picture for us. Thank you. Welcome to the big game, and the atmosphere here is electric, Michelle. Very interesting, Kevin. It's electric. Spot on as usual, Michelle. Spot on. But there's been a sensation. Not only has the caring business class team sacked its captain, Tunner Bull, but the ABC has been banned from broadcasting the game. The new business class captain, Scuttle Them More Less Son, known affectionately in the tabloid media as Scut Butt, and his half-wit, uh, uh, sorry, half-back media player, Mitch Feifeld, object activity say they hate the ABC because it only broadcasts the game when it's being played on the left side of the ground, the left wing. What's the story here, Michelle? 
very interesting, Kevin. They say they hate the ABC because it only broadcasts the game when it's being played on the left wing. Stunning analysis, Michelle, stunning. Yet very strange because the ball never strays onto the left wing since the Socialist Party captain shortened ambition announced its game plan to make sure it too went nowhere near it. Very interesting, Kevin. The Socialist Party captain, Mr Shorten Ambition, announced its game plan to make sure it too went nowhere near it. Thank you, Michelle, thank you. And another sensation. The caring business class team are all on the back line. They've gone ultra-defensive. They've stacked it and then stacked more. And notice at the extreme backward pocket position, former captain Tiny a bit more for the bosses, and his equally extreme backward pocket teammates like a bets on the bosses, Ed screws the workers, Thea Lance well, Christian marriage son, and Michelle, notice there's a zombie standing in the goal square dripping with rotting detritus, a zombie. Very interesting, Kevin. I think it's Mr Duffer. My go- my goodness, you're right, Michelle. Well spotted. It's Constable Duffer, but why is he standing there trying to block the goalpost but facing the wrong way? He's facing the crowd. He's either very confused, which is a strong possibility, or he's trying to protect the players from the hordes in the outer, Michelle. Very interesting, Kevin. Mr Duffer is either very confused, which is a strong possibility, or he's trying to protect the players from the hordes in the outer. Uh, speaking of the common hordes, Michelle, another sensation. Notice far, far backward pocket defender Angus Tailingsall, with Scott Butt's support, has declared the only thing that matters is extracting the ridiculously bloated admission prices at the box office and dismissing the dilapidated, shocking state of the ground, since it was privatised for efficiency, as irrelevant, denying the uh, dying grass and cracking soil are dying and cracking, but then says their only concern is reducing those ridiculously bloated admission prices for the average supporter, but yet they keep increasing, but tailings or says attempts to save the grass and soil would force prices even higher. He expresses sincere concern for the fans. And then he's just cracked a very, very funny joke. As long as the fans are powered by good, clean coal, he said. He's laughing himself silly. What, what's happening, Michelle? Very interesting, Kevin. Mr. Tailingsor has just cracked a very, very funny joke and he's laughing himself silly. Another great comment, Michelle, great comment. Well, laughing himself even sillier, I suppose. And, and Scott Butt has just boasted his team so encourages women, it has named the star women it encourages as emergencies to protect them from injury. And more sensation, one of the emergencies, Kelly Oda, why are workers so evil, has just stopped people entering the ground until the workers on the gates agree to forego their selfish crippling penalty rates and indeed accept a wage cut for the good of the game. And the umpires have supported her. Well, what's going on here, Michelle? Very interesting, Kevin. Ms. Oda, why are workers so evil has just stopped people entering the ground until the workers on the gates agree to forego their selfish crippling penalty rates and indeed accept a wage cut for the good of the game. And the umpires have supported her.
Uh, yet another insightful analysis, Michelle, insightful. Yeah, but look, we're, we're going to have to head back to the studio because at present the game can't start. There's a bloke in drag who looks like the Catholic Archbishop over on the far boundary, blessing the caring business class team with one hand and counting this huge pile of money with the other, and Duff is still holding back the hordes, but no one can find the socialist team. Shortened ambition seems to have disappeared. Ch check over there on the far right and see if there's any sign of them, but... But look, until there's more action, we'll cross back to the studio. Right, well, let's hope the game can get going shortly, but thanks to Kevin and especially thanks to Michelle for her wonderful analysis. What would we do without her? Very exciting. Let's hope the socialist team turns up. Notice earlier in the week, its acting captain, Tania Plibersack, principal, accused the defending premiers of caring only about winning the game and ignoring the fans forking out their ridiculously bloated admission prices. So in everything you say, the Socialist Party team says, uh, Tania, you aren't thinking about winning the game. No, not for a second. So you don't want to win. Unlike our opponents, we only want to win to help the supporters in the stands. Our opponents only care about themselves. Last week, we gave the Scalper of the Week award to the airlines for increasing airfares to Perth by 500%, market forces and all that, the second the siren sounded, sending Melbourne across the Nullarbor. But in retrospect, perhaps they, in their good corporate citizen kindness, knew they were doing all those desperate, long-suffering demons who couldn't afford the rip-off a favour, saving them from paying a fortune to see their heroes slaughtered. Those selfish workers on the turnstiles expecting penalty rates, well, expected to be paid at all for being supplied with a meaningful job to fill in their otherwise worthless lives, brings us to the who'd be a caring employer department. Take one of our favourite rational thinkers, Innes Will Cost Workers of the Trublawazi Industry Profits Group, forced to attack a Socialist Party irresponsible proposal that employers be forced to pay super for extremely low income earners and for casual workers, who may well be the same people, with some silly suggestion from the Socialist Party, not, not Innes of course, this will increase the retirement incomes of women in particular, given the Socialist Party currently just loves women for no particular pragmatic reason. Paul Innes pointed out the changes would benefit men more than women. Now, there's a surprise, but would disproportionately increase caring employers' costs. Improving retirement incomes for women is, of course, an important goal, Innes expressed his concern. However, uh, yes, Innes, if workers cost so much, why not get rid of them altogether, eliminate those crippling costs. Obviously, that would be impractical, and don't forget, all we care about is creating jobs, hopefully at some time, at some future time, higher paid jobs. But look, it could provide a barrier to we caring employers making the profits that so benefit society as a whole. Uh, so workers make profit, but they're not a cost. We caring employers could make even greater profits that so benefit society as a whole if it were not for those crippling costs showing how evil unions and costly, lazy, avaricious workers do not share our concern for society as a whole. 
And as the aged care industry reels from a few left hooks, it has been forced to point out that mooted legislation to enforce staff ratios and appropriately trained staff would add $5 billion to their costs. And therefore, the nation can't afford proper trained staff levels, given it's the nation which forks out most of their profits from the public purse, which Innes and the industry and Kelly and that lot know is a sensible role for government that should otherwise keep out of these things that leave them to market forces, laissez-faire, competition policy on the great level playing field of world's best practice. But finally, we must finish on a sad note the impending death of satire. Thanks to many, but in particular, US of the UN of the US of the world, big supremo Donald Trample the poor, who this week said the US of hated globalism, embraced patriotism, and having said he didn't care about the rest of the world, attacked the rest of the world. Although he had a very good relationship with China, which understood his position and just loved him. The same China that is ripping off the US of in an abusive trade relationship, plundering US of wealth. Countries accepted US of foreign aid without giving anything back, whatever that meant. And he was sure Iranian big supremo Rouhani is an absolutely lovely man who is spreading chaos, death and destruction across the Middle East. Horrible. And he, Donald, had accomplished more than almost any administration in the history of our country. Well, that got a good laugh from the audience. And he did have the modesty to say almost any administration and the modesty to say how people admired his giant mind, presumably inside his giant swelled head. And he respected the women who accused his Supreme Court nominee, who was one of the finest men in the whole world, emphasis on men, even though the women were lying stooges. And anyway, Donald knows important men like Donald and Supreme Court nominees who know what's good for women's bodies, can do what they like, and women just love it. And well, it goes on. No satire. He said all that. He's making us redundant, forcing us into retirement. But no, cool your excitement, listener. Bad news, not yet. I'll be back with more of this nonsense next week. Good morning. Now if you're sick and tired of the news reports And your modern day life is a blues source Put your head in the sand Hey, this is Jane from The Herd Please support community radio and your local music scene We can't hear you Genocide. Don't hear it in the media, the police turn a blind eye. Rape, pillage, torture, death, massacres, years. Half a million dead and rising too many civilian tears. It's police state oppression, yet the world's got amnesia. It's all at the hands of Indonesia.
much fled. There was hope for independence that was soon knocked on the head. Indonesia handpicked voters, 0.1 to 8%, but it's pretty hard to vote with a gun held to your head. The UN was complicit in this act of no choice, so now it's up to you to give West Papua your voice. So that song was by the Social Surgeons. It's yeah. called Free West Papua. Uh, and uh, yeah, it's also it. on the Songs of Memory and Hope CD. Which you can get down at the uh, women's office yes. down in Docklands, yep. West Papua. Uh, the... Uh, you're on Solidarity Breakfast with Annie, and uh, coincidentally, uh, uh, Kevin finished. His, it was uh, part of Kevin's uh, thing was all about uh, uh, the eco- economics that's been going on at the moment, and uh, I followed up an article in the Australian on the 18th of September where they presented uh, Professor Mark uh, Woden's fo- uh, fo- findings. Wooden Foden. Findings that no, there has been no rise in inequality, and that the wages are keeping up with living costs. So I went off and got, had a talk with Bill Mitchell, who is a professor of economics at Newcastle University, and uh, this is what he had to say. Okay, the reason for why I wanted to talk to you in particular was because of an article that appeared in the Australian on the eighteenth of September, and it was uh, a piece that's going to be delivered at the Social and Economic Forum, which is uh, quite an influential group uh, that happens on 
October and it's going to happen in Melbourne. Professor Mark Wooden, who is a, uh, from the Melbourne Institute, Director of Household Income and Dynamics Australia Survey, he says that uh, in actual fact there isn't a problem with inequality in Australia and the statistics prove it to be so that uh, wages have far outstripped increased living costs over the past decade. Now, this is quite contrary to some of the messages that are coming out of the ACTU and, uh, in fact, from uh, workers' movements. Uh, is it a statistical uh, mirage that uh, Professor Mark Wooden is talking about? No, he's uh, cherry-picking the old the old concept of cherry-picking, and that means that you <clears throat> can basically pick out a data sample, a period, that's convenient to your argument. Yeah. And, uh, so what he's basically... What, what he's saying is that over the last 10 years, since uh, uh, 2008, which is at the, at the beginning of the global financial crisis, uh, real wages, that's the purchasing power equivalent of our incomes that we earn each week or whatever, has risen. Now, that's true. They've risen by 6%. So in ter over the last 10 years, if you take the whole period, uh, workers have got 6% higher real wages than they had 10 years ago. In other words, they can buy 6% more things with their incomes than they could 10 years ago. But the problem is that uh, most of those gains were made early in that period and particularly as a consequence of the federal government's fiscal stimulus which really saved the Australian economy from recession. And uh, that was quite unique because, you know, the other advanced countries had a major recession during the global financial crisis. Australia avoided it. And that was because of the big um, fiscal stimulus that the, gov that the Rudd government brought in, uh, the um, insulation and the school buildings construction projects. Now, at that, that benefited the construction industry. It saved the Australian economy and it allowed workers to enjoy some real wages growth. But the point is that if you take the data from, say, March 2018 onwards, so, in other words, the most recent trend, real wages, that is the purchasing power of our money incomes, have actually fallen. And that trend's accelerating. And uh, uh, so... Yes, he's correct. Over a 10-year period, over that period, he's correct. But the most recent trends that have been unfolding over the last two years tells you the opposite story, that workers are actually going backwards now. It's quite interesting too because uh, if you look at it in terms of the framework of statistics, because he then he actually talks about things like... Uh, uh, the uh, notion that um, even though petrol has gone up by 16.5% and electricity has gone up by 10.4% and childcare has gone up by 6%, 
The fact that fruit and veg costs have gone down by 3.2% and clothing down by 3%, that, that, that there's an overall balancing out. So it sort of tells you something about uh, the nature of statistics, doesn't it? Well, I mean, when, when we're talking about these trends, the, you know, the purchasing power of our wages, we're, we're using the consumer price index. And the, and the consumer price index is a a credible measure of price movements, but it but it's not it's an average type concept, and it's not necessarily relevant for different cohorts, different people, and uh, so the ABS, the Australian Bureau of Statistics, publishes a a number of different views of the movements in the cost of living, depending whether you're on a pension, whether you're an unemployment recipient, whether you're a worker, all of these different things. And so we know that uh, for, say, someone on a low income, particularly on a um, an income support type payment, you know, among the most disadvantaged people in our communities, they are, have been significantly hit by the energy price rises. Um, Whereas, whereas other workers, other people, may not be as exposed to those as as others, and so it's it's a complex story, and that's why we summarise it using these uh, averages. But uh, you're correct; it's quite a quite a complex story. But I think no matter how complex you want to make it, workers are going backwards now over the last two years, and that's not changing any time soon. Well, let's go to two actual clear statements that he's quite clearly going to make in his presentation, which is that uh, uh, that wages grew more slowly than productivity in the late 1990s and early 2000s, and again since 2012, as the resources boom came to an end. However, he said... The suggestion that corporation, the corporate sector was reaping an unfair share of income was wrong and that excluding the resource sector where a massive injection of capital was supported by a relatively small workforce, the share of income going to profits has been stable. Most companies are not making huge profits, he said. I think you're talking down to the people at Longford in relation to Mobile Exxon, they might disagree. Well, I think I think uh, that's a very selective interpretation of what's happened. I mean, the, the overall statistics tell you that since the mid-1980s, let's, ta- let's step back one moment, historically, the purchasing power equivalent of our wages, which we call real wages, it's, it's, it's what we can buy with our money, has grown in proportion with productivity growth. Now, productivity growth means the the output per unit of input. So, in other words, the economy, if productivity is growing, it's getting we're getting more output for the given number of uh, productive inputs that we're using to produce that output. Now, historically, up until about the 1980s. Uh, real wages grew in proportion with that. And that made sense because if you're pumping out more and more stuff, then you've got to give the, the 
the workers the capacity to be able to buy that stuff. So their, their, their real capacity to purchase has to rise. Now, since the 1980s, that's, that trend has, uh, that proportionality has, has, has stopped and real wages, and this has been a worldwide trend, under the neoliberal era, real wages across the world have been growing more slowly than productivity. Now, you might ask the question, well, how did workers continue to consume if their real capacity to consume was lagging behind the the real output sort of growth of the economy? Well, the answer was that we started to accumulate massive amounts of household debt. Yeah, credit. Yep. Yeah, and that kept, us, that kept us able to consume out of credit rather than real wages growth. But that's, that's a separate story to what you want today. The, 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 the reality is, even if we just go over the last 10 years, which that's Mark Wooden's uh, time frame, even if we consider that period, productivity growth has grown by 13.6% and real wages have grown by 6%. So even over that period, the real wages have been lagging behind productivity growth. And what that's meant has been that the share of wages in national income has been falling and it's now at historic lows. It's now around 51%, 52%. And that's historically a very low figure. And now you ask yourself the question, well, if the share of wages in national income has been falling, where's the extra... Uh, income been going, and it has, and, and it, it hasn't been going to government. It's been going to the profit share, the, the, the firms, corporations, profit share. Now, now the most recent data coming out from the ABS, which was released earlier this month, the Business Indicators data, shows us that profits since about March 2016, profits have soared absolutely soared and that time period from from then till now is also the time period that real wages have started falling and there's been further redistribution of national income to profits so to say that corporations haven't been enjoying a profits boom is just it's just not true and the abs data shows it not to be true now where's that money going some of it's going into funding employment growth so employment has still been growing, albeit a dominance of precarious and temporary type jobs. Uh, but the other part of it has been going to uh, other component of that soaring profits has been going to shareholders. And and to try to deny that is is just a denial of the facts. The the final part of what he says which I find very fascinating because it's around uh, uh, a lot of the uh, discussion about what's difficult about what's going on for workers and others in the Australian community. While wage growth had been slow, Professor Wooden said, there have been no real increase in inequality with the results of the Hilda survey showing it had reduced slightly over the past few years. For most of the past 20 years, the median wage income has hovered between 1.55 and 1.6 times the earnings of the lowest earning 10% of the population. 
I think that's uh, outrageous, uh, considering the uh, uh, state of things like New Start and stuff like that. To be able to say that inequality has not increased. Well, I think if he's talking about the median needs. Yes, uh, exactly. So, I mean, the facts are that the the total total inequality measured by you know the standard measure, the Gini coefficient has risen slightly in Australia over the last 20 years, just slightly. And we, we, in other countries like the UK and uh, uh, the US and certainly many of the European countries, the Gini coefficient has moved more than that. In other words, inequality has intensified more than it has in Australia. So it's, it's true that Australia... Has, has significantly less inequality than, say, in income and wealth in, than, say, the US. And that's in no small part because we've been able to retain, in some shape or form, uh, our transfer system, our income support system and the progressivity of our tax system. But it's still a rising inequality. And if you look at... Uh, you look at the extremes of the income distribution, not the median, but the, but out in the extremes. The top end of town has been uh, grabbing more and more of national income for themselves, and the bottom end of town, the, those on income support payments, etc., are falling further behind. There's no doubt about that. And uh, the the fact that the you know, if you compare, say, the unemployed, the New Start benefit, the unemployment benefit, to the the poverty lines, and the poverty lines are put out by Mark Wooden's own institute at Melbourne University. Uh, if you look at that, the, the a, a New Start recipient is falling further and further below the poverty line, uh, and that's why there's been such a push by. Uh, ACOS and even the Business Council to, and the OECD and many bodies that typically wouldn't support increases in income support payments. They've been pushing the government, both the Rudd-Gillard government and the whatever the combination is, Abbott, Turnbull, ScoMo government, to to increase the unemployment rate significantly and, and all, both sides of politics have refused to do that. And so I think it's a, it's a, it's a misleading picture to talk about the, the median when we know at the extremes there's been quite dramatic movements. Now this is a report that's in The Australian and it's quite revealing that it should be written up in this way. So, I mean, he may have just very straightforward research um, and it, and but the headline says research reveals pay up thirty one percent wage rises outpacing living costs, which is a direct message against what uh, has been uh, being pushed by uh, uh, labour organisations. So yeah, I mean, the bite's on, isn't it? Well, look, the Australian is. We all know we all know the political biases and the ideological biases of the Australian. I mean, they're their cap in hand with the corporate sector. Uh, they've been pushing to scrap penalty rates. They hate min- they hate the minimum wage rises. They have ne- not supported increases in income support payments. Uh, so we everybody should know that. And I mean, if 
uh, if they're fooled by... And we also should know that uh, all all uh, media outlets frame their headlines and their spin in a way that suits the ideology of the um, of the editorial um, staff. And so I think if anyone's fooled by that headline, uh, uh, they, they need to go and read the data. And, uh, uh, I, I, you know, I think that uh, any progressive person who reads The Australian has got rocks in the head anyway. <laughs> Thanks for talking to me, Bill. Thanks, you're an antidote to. Uh, I read that and I was quite outraged to, to tell you the truth. Yeah, I think I think it's just a reflection of the ongoing uh, way in which the Australian operates, and I think it's lost all credibility as a as a newspaper. In fact. Thanks very much. All the best. Take care. There you go. And uh, we've come to the end of Solidarity Breakfast. We should uh, tell everybody what we did this morning. Yes, so we had, first we heard from uh, some cousin and mother uh, of Liep Goni uh, at the memorial that was held at Parliament uh, this week. And we also heard uh, an interview with Anne-Marie Jakia, who, uh, who directed the film Wajib which is called... Which is, Waib. Yeah, Waib. Is, that how, is that how you say it? Waib. I think it's a bit different. Say it. I can't actually remember exactly, but it, well, I think it's Wahib, like it's quite oh, a... Wahib. Yeah. yeah. Okay, sorry. Well, the J is... Yeah, yeah, no, yeah. I did the same. <laughs> it was uh, enlightening to me as well. Yeah, which is uh, anyway, part we better of hurry the up. Palestinian Film Festival. Yep. And then we heard from Bill Mitchell just there at the end. Yeah. Yes. See? It was a good morning. Yes, it was great. It was. Thanks for coming in. Thanks for listening. From every corner of the world, they came from all around. When in 1851, they struck gold upon the ground. Every voyage was a long one, months upon the stormy sea. Some to seek their fortune, others escaping slavery. What they found on the gold fields was ruled by brutish thugs, discrimination and taxation mixed with swinging billy clubs. The gold was getting scarcer and cops were getting worse. The diggers burned their licenses and vowed to end this curse. They swore an oath beneath the Southern Cross. They'd stand together and break the license laws. From twenty different nations they gathered here as one In Ballarat beneath the southern sun The crown tried to divide them, giving preference to some The diggers wouldn't have it, they said it's all of us or none They built a stockade while the redcoats massed nearby And they heard the miners shouting We're ready now to die The rebel miners waited For whatever lay in store And on one December morning In 1854 The redcoats attacked the camp Dozens there would fall Amongst these brave gold diggers Who'd be listening to the call And swore an oath Stand together and break the license laws From twenty different nations They gathered here as one In Ballarat beneath the southern sun 
thought it was over and things go their way. But when 15,000 miners rallied a month later on the day, the crown conceded everything, all of their demands. They'd want an end to license fees, the right to vote and land. So here's to Joe and Charlie, Waller and the rest. They drew the battle lines and put crown rule to the test. The diggers may have lost the battle, but they quickly won the day. And those shots fired in Victoria were heard 10,000 miles away. They swore an oath beneath the Southern Cross. They'd stand together and break the license. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.